Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with Carzar Alex Dykes. Alex, you just drove the Kia Sportage redesigned. What's new? What remains of what was good? How has it changed? Yes, Kia has quite the crossover line lately. And, you know, there was a time where Kia was accused of being a little bit late to the crossover party and having a laundry list of sedans that nobody was interested in. And now they have just a ton of crossovers of every size and shape. Uh, they have two three row crossovers. They have the Sportage, which is now sort of jammed in the middle. And then they've got a ton of things down at the bottom, whether you want to call a Soul a crossover or a Kia Nero a crossover course, Kia would like you to think of them as that. We certainly have the Seltos, which is on the smaller side. And I think that those smaller crossovers and then the bigger ones have given them room to adjust the positioning of the Sportage in the lineup. Uh, to be honest, it's a whole lot less sport than it ever has been before, but it's more of what customers in that segment are looking for. It's bigger on the inside than really anything else in the segment. Um, it's obviously the sister ship to the Hyundai Tucson. Uh, so on terms of interior room and cargo volume, it's very similar, but a little bit bigger than Tucson. And what really surprised me is if you want to get more leg room and more cargo room than you'll find in the new Sportage, you have to get something bigger than a Ford Edge. It's that big on the inside. So now, assuming you don't go with a maxed out seating configuration on a Sorento, how much overlap is there now between the Sportage and a conventional two-row Sorento? Yeah, that's an interesting one. They did keep the price tag of the Sportage lower than some of the competition. So it doesn't go up as high as, say, the Mazda CX-5 does, uh, or obviously some of the, the other uh, crossovers out there that have things like two-liter turbos, etc. Instead, it seems that Kia is focusing mainly on the sort of the core of the segment, you know, family hauling, gadgets and tech, hybrid systems, and the upcoming plug-in hybrid as well. So the big things that you'll notice in the top end trims of the Sportage are absolutely massive screens. So the, uh, the nude styling direction from Kia seems to be a curved display array right behind the steering wheel that will contain your choice of three different instrument clusters, depending on the version that you get, and two different infotainment systems. The largest setup is going to have twin 12.3-inch LCDs. Um, we see that same setup in the new Nero. We see it in the EV6. And we also see it in the redesigned Telluride. So you can bet that basically every Kia is going to have this enormous bank O screens in the dashboard uh, coming soon. And perhaps more surprising than that is that you're even going to find that in mid-level trims. It's not only reserved to the very top end models. So I spent most of my day in the mid-level EX trim and the EX trim had uh, leather upholstery. It had the enormous screen arrangement, slightly different size screens than you'll find in the top end one, 10 inch on the driver's side, 12 inch for the infotainment system. Um, but its price tag was around $35,000 as we were uh, driving it. So really very in the meat of the segment, if you will. Um, but they have dropped the turbo model. So if you want extra performance, you have to get the hybrid. Um, there is, there at the moment, or at least they're saying, no two liter turbo, no two and a half liter turbo, um, which has definitely been a thing that Sportage has been associated with in the past. Now, Volkswagen has done something similar with the Tiguan. They've got a vehicle that's very large for its class. And one of the ways they get it to be that way is that they compromise a little bit on things like powertrain. Do you see the mm -hmm. Tiguan as a direct competitor and did Kia make the same compromises relative to powertrain and interior space? Well, sort of as we talked about last week, is is the Tiguan a competitor to anybody? <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> kidding, <laughs> kidding aside there, um, I would say it's a valid competitor, obviously, to the larger options in the segment. Obviously, the Hyundai Tucson is a direct competitor because it's the same base components uh, in a Hyundai vehicle rather than a Kia. Uh, but if you want bigger screens, more screens, you're going to find those in the Kia. Um, it's obviously a direct competitor to RAV4 and CRV. Those are obviously the most direct competitors, period. Um, both of those have long been known for big cargo areas, decent reliability, and now, of course, with the RAV4, um, you know, definitely high mile per gallon uh, hybrid system. And we find all of that now in the Sportage. The Sportage has, has traditionally been smaller than a RAV4, 
And uh, it's kind of an odd juxtaposition in these generations because RAV4 shrank on the inside and Sportage gained massive amounts of interior room uh, in this generation. So definitely also Nissan Rogue is on the larger end of things in this segment. And of course, the Mitsubishi Outlander, not that too many people are buying the Mitsubishi either. Um, but it's those are really the only vehicles that you're going to find with this kind of roominess on the inside. You know, over 80 inches of combined legroom and about 40 cubic feet of cargo space in the back. I guess um, in terms of the number one calling card of Hyundai Kia, really both of them over the last couple of years, and this is emblematic in the Telluride and the Palisade, most of their new models feel more expensive than they are internally. Mm -hmm. Does the Sportage feel that way, like it's a class above in terms of fit finish materials? I would agree with that. I think they've done a really good job differentiating it in the segment. Um, there are, you know, a few quibbles here and there about some interior components, but on the whole, it certainly feels more premium than RAV4. Um, I also think it feels more premium than uh, CRV. CRV actually has, a, I think, a well-done interior, but the technology is really feeling old inside the, the, the Honda. Um, and the Honda also has, to be honest, sort of a small minivan vibe, really, rather than a crossover vibe to it, just the, the general style and feel inside and out. And uh, Kia is definitely going for something that's bit more, I guess, adventurous, but not really classically sporty with this generation. So there's going to be the the new X Pro, if I'm getting this name right, the X Pro trim and the X line trim. Uh, they're going to be more off-road styled and the X Pro model is going to give you all-terrain tires from the factory, um, some blacked out components, some different roof rails, etc., things like that. Basically what we're seeing with Mazda in the new CX-50, trying to make it a little bit more rugged looking. And of course, the Subaru Wilderness line. Now, the thing about compact and midsize SUVs is that they want to blend into the landscape, offend no one. We're about to transition to a topic that's definitely going to be polarizing, and that is battery swapping. Alex, in short, what is it? And let's make the case for it before we critique it, because there are a lot of critiques to be made. Let's explain what it is and then what it does right before we go sure. into why yeah. it's not a U.S. solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, battery swapping is 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 a, is actually quite old as far as the tech goes. I mean, Renault uh, was trying to promise it in 2010, as I recall. Uh, Tesla gave it a stab in 2013 with the Model S. In essence, uh, what the theory is is you can you can alleviate the charging times for an electric vehicle by simply disconnecting the battery and plugging a new one in. Sort of like you know our 1990s cell phones, if you remember back then. You know, I had a I had a Motorola Microtech and I had a bag full of batteries, and it was always that hang on, I will call you back, and you snap a new one in and continue your call. That's the theory with battery swapping is you would be able to stop and in just a few minutes, there would be either a, a hand process or a robot assisted process where they pull out the old battery, pop in a new one, off you go in a fully charged battery pack. Um, there are a lot of promises here. And uh, in China, the big promise is that especially people that are operating taxis don't have to delay for DC fast charging. That's really the huge push there in China um, is if you have a fleet of people uh, that are doing, you're paying hourly to transport people or transport cargo, et cetera. Why would you pay them to hang out while they charge the battery when you can do this instantly? Um, there's also the promise of not owning the battery. So in an ideal world, in some of these setups, you don't own the battery. The company owns the battery, you lease it. Um, you theoretically always have the latest battery tech. That's how it's promised. And you never end up being the recipient of a bad battery uh, because you just send it back and you get a good battery. Now, the thing about battery swapping is that it was considered in the United States by Tesla during its early years. And they even built one prototype location, which yep. may have been more about ZEV credits in California it than is. actually swapping batteries. That but is definitely why correct. Why did they have yeah, so Yeah, so Tesla tried it in 2013 and uh, they, got a, they got extra credits in California for having a fast charging thing. It had to be under 10 minutes. So the entire process would have to be less than 10 minutes. And so far, no battery will charge that quickly. Um, and it got them extra ZEV credits, which they could then sell to support the business. But I think in the end, Tesla decided that the value of those credits generated was not sufficient to justify the expense of the battery swapping program. Um, and it should be noted that this expense is definitely a real thing because NEO apparently in China um, considers this a loss leader for their electrified vehicles. They do not consider it a profit center at all at the moment. And it's important to note that there are 
I mean, there are reasons that this is kind of cool in theory. The number one being that you can just swap out a battery tray and be on your way. But take mm -hmm. everything that you've ever heard about the difficulty of financing, building, zoning, and locating chargers, and then multiply it by the size of a building. All of those additional challenges apply to battery swapping, plus the fact that you need to have a yeah. certain number of batteries above the actual number on the road in state charging, which creates resource draws and demands on mines and all sorts of currently very difficult to obtain materials and supply lines. Right. And of course, you know, the, the, you have to warehouse these batteries. You still have to charge them on site. So, I mean, you don't want to roll up and get a dead battery from your battery swap station. So there's still a, a certain number of, of cars that can throughput through this station. It's not like there's going to be an endless supply of, of freshly charged batteries back there. Um, but we should be, you know, clarify what, what these uh, viewers were asking about, and specifically Neo's battery swapping solution. Um, and uh, so just to drill down on their specific setup a little bit more directly, it is definitely very focused at fleet customers, taxi drivers, et cetera. And the vehicles they're all using all use consistent battery packs. So all those Neo vehicles use identical battery packs. They can be swapped in and out. You can't swap any other manufacturer's battery with a Neo battery. Um, all the Neos use air-cooled battery packs, not liquid-conditioned battery packs. They're neither heated nor cooled. And at the moment, Neo only has a 2% EV market share in China. So we're not talking about a lot of battery swapping going on, but they do have over 500 swapping stations. Now, there are a lot of challenges. The location lies the complexity of these systems. There is the need to have extra batteries beyond what's in the cars produced and ready to go. There is the problem of proprietary battery packs, which mm -hmm. may not be interchangeable from vehicle to vehicle. And something else that we're seeing increasingly is the incorporation of the battery pack as a structural feature of the car. You lose mm -hmm. that. It has to come out as a replaceable component. Indeed. And this is that's a critical component, really, because... You know, the, the battery pack in most modern EVs is not like a frame in a body on frame vehicle. This is not they're not true skateboard EVs. We actually have no true skateboard EVs currently on the market. The best way to think of it is that the battery is an interchangeable component of the unibody structure of the vehicle. So we have a unibody that will more or less support itself and the suspension is bolted to the unibody. And then the battery goes into the unibody and actually is responsible for adding some structural component to the vehicle. So it's not like the car is a wet noodle in its own right, but neither will it function appropriately without the battery being there. The moment you need to swap batteries in and out outside of a factory setting, you have to add extra weight to the vehicle. So you have to be, uh, you have to have fasteners and latch mechanisms and, and body protection in the areas where the battery pack is going to be going in and out. You have to worry about fasteners that could get corroded in poor weather states, uh, states that use salt on their roads, etc. You also have to worry about the mechanical interconnects for the battery pack. And this is one big challenge with the Tesla packs is that Tesla packs are water-cooled. It's one of the problems they ran into in 2013 is you have to have quick disconnects for the water lines and quick disconnects for the electric lines, and you're losing coolant uh, every time you swap a battery in and out in the Tesla swapping system. There aren't very many uh, uh, liquid quick disconnects that don't have that particular problem. And so you also have to be mindful of the fluid refills and fluid topping up, et cetera. Uh, it also arguably stifles innovation uh, because if you have to have a consistent battery pack in every vehicle, then you can't just update your battery pack willy-nilly like we honestly see in many car companies out there. For instance, Tesla is very responsive at, at adapting to newer battery technology. They've had tons of different batteries in their vehicle. Um, you can now buy various Tesla models that have different manufacturers packs in them. They're not all Panasonic anymore, and they're not all cylindrical cells either uh, anymore. Some of them are pouch cells and they're less expensive vehicles. And we definitely see that in other competitive electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids out there. You know, if we take a look at Volvo's model with their plug-in hybrids, they've only been on sale since around 2016. And Volvo's now on their fifth battery pack in their plug-in hybrids. So battery technology is, is massaging along, uh, not necessarily in a straight line, but there are reasons for different formulations, different uh, um, you know, chemistry, et cetera. And uh, arguably, if you had to have a common battery pack, that would be a problem. Um, there's also a performance problem in a way. If you're going to do this in a performance EV, we're talking about even bigger battery packs, even more cooling requirements, not to mention the electrical disconnects. 
which are definitely a major concern. If you still want to be able to DC fast charge your EV and you want to have a high performance EV, we're talking about massive electrical connections. Um, and over time, those could wear and be potential for fire risk. It's also important to visualize some of these setups. If you like the idea of battery swapping, take a look at some of the stations. Take a look at some of the stations that were, for example, deployed in Denmark and Israel on a prototype basis. Look at the size of what's necessary mm -hmm. to swap a battery into one car. Now take a look at the largest Tesla superchargers in California and imagine a facility at scale to swap all of those cars in rapid fashion, it would be the size of a home. I'm not going to say it would be the size of a Home Depot. It would be huge. Yes, it would be yeah, an enormous physical facility. And then we then we encounter the reality. And part of what I think killed it in the United States for Tesla was supercharged a, a two prong thing. Supercharging got fast, so it's now at acceptable levels. And the reality is, people don't supercharge as much as they think. And that's that's the really big bottom line with electric cars. Is there is this uh, initial EV adopter concern or EV detractor, um, you know, disinformation, I guess is probably the best way to put it, that somehow DC fast charging is practice is a multi multi times a day affair, like, oh, well, you're gonna need to DC fast charge a lot in these 18 minutes, they really stack up. But when you really look at how EV drivers use their EV, the need for it becomes less and less. Um, it would be primarily road trip, which means then you have to have these battery swapping stations in places where people don't have EVs in order to make it work. That's the kind of counterintuitive logic here is, you know, if you have an electric vehicle in the Bay Area or in New York or Boston or Los Angeles, um, you probably don't need a battery swapping station locally. You need a battery swapping station between uh, the Bay Area and Los Angeles. You need one between El Paso and Phoenix. And there's not a lot going on there other than this potential for the random electric road trip. Um, so it's kind of a tough sell in that way. And I will say that, you know, when we looked back on our records, like in the Ford Mustang Mach-E, this is a good statistic for people that are concerned about this. Um, you know, we drove 15,000 miles in one year on that vehicle, and we did about 20 DC fast charging stops. Um, some of them were just to test. Actually, the vast majority of them were just for video work and testing, but including that, it was just 20 stops. The rest of the time, it was plugged in at home or at the office, and it was always full. And it should be noted that overseas, particularly in China, one of the great economic success stories of battery swapping is not what NEO is doing, because as Alex explained, they see it as a loss leader. It's actually commercial cement trucks. Mm -hmm. Very heavy vehicles that have, if you will, secondary power systems that are always on, like a cement mixer has to maintain the cargo in a fluid fashion and a fluid state until it's delivered. And they have been very successful at using battery swapping because, mm -hmm. as Alex says, DC fast charging is rare if you're actually traveling in your electric car. It's not the most common thing in the world, whereas a cement truck moving around the city will always use huge amounts of energy, even if it travels a physically small distance. Exactly. And in commercial vehicles, it it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you have uh, a, a more stable, more commercial sized battery pack or a modular battery pack where performance isn't as much of a concern, longevity is more of a concern. Um, and that ability to quickly swap in and out. Also, in a vehicle that has a frame, there is room for the battery pack. It's just hanging out there, clinging onto the frame. Good example would be, say, a hypothetical battery swap for a, a new Ford F-150 Lightning, for instance. Um, the battery pack is not a structural component in the vehicle anymore. So some of those worries fade away in those instances. And then you have that ability. Um, we should also say that battery swapping is by no means cheap. So I looked it up and the current price for battery swapping in a NEO is uh, $230 a month. And you're allowed six swaps a month for that $230. Now, the benefit for them is they don't pay for the battery. You have to buy the vehicle and you get a 70% price tag, so 30% price reduction on the vehicle to get the car without the battery. But then over five years, you've paid about $14,000 for the battery, plus, of course, whatever future cost increases go along with that subscription. And of course, you're never going to stop paying for that battery. And it's also key to remember just how slow superchargers were back when Tesla was seriously considering battery swapping. I think they started at 90 kilowatts back in the earliest days. I think they were under 100. Yes. And back then, battery swapping looked compelling. Now, we've gone 
beyond even Tesla's version three superchargers, we have vehicles from Hyundai, from Kia, from Lucid that are charging at 300 kilowatts or more. And once you can get 100 miles in under 10 minutes, or you can get an 80% charge in under 20, the pull to have a subscription service battery swapping system is much lower. Right. Yep. And and you know, essentially every new EV out there from from Tesla to to Volkswagen will give you that hundred miles of range in under 10 minutes-ish. Um, depending on the trim level, there is something in the lineup that will do that. The only exceptions are some of the newer EVs that are really trying to focus on on uh low cost of acquisition. So uh the new Kia Nero EV, for instance, it's not gonna charge terribly swiftly. Uh, the Chevy Bolt and Bolt EUV do not charge terribly quickly, but they're really focusing on on a low cost of acquisition. Um, and it's worth noting that you know if you have to pay thirteen thousand eight hundred dollars for your battery pack every five years, you know you could actually replace the battery in a Chevy Bolt every five years um, for that about that price. So it, it's not really much of a savings. Um, and and decoupling the battery ownership from the swapping is kind of a tricky thing because in the in the initial stages of of battery swapping uh design the theory was that you would stick your battery in the repository it would then get charged you would drive off do your thing continue your trip maybe other battery swaps and then you would come back through and pick up the battery you bought because at the beginning tesla was not talking about leasing batteries it was like you buy the battery there's this battery swap thing so that that posed questions of well, what happens if I end up with a bum battery and now I now I have am stuck with this thing? I have to go back to that battery swap station to get another one and then hope that that's better. Um, and then decoupled with that, the other decoupled side is like VinFast, who doesn't want to sell you the battery at all in the vehicle. They're not proposing battery swapping. They're just talking about battery leasing instead of you actually buying the battery. And that will be an experiment in and of itself. Of course, if you're not familiar with the name VinFast, we now have a Vietnamese EV maker selling vehicles in the United States. They debuted at the New York Auto Show this year. Uh, they are going to be breaking ground on a factory down in the Carolinas. So watch this space. But the big innovation is going to be battery leasing. And I would also mm -hmm. say to a lesser extent price. Yeah. And that's and the price tag is a tricky one with VinFast, because when you take a look at the cost of their battery lease, then they on average become more expensive than a comparable Tesla. So that is a tricky one. OK, now from the Kia Sportage to battery swapping to a topic that is maybe just as divisive as battery swapping. We're, we're dealing with controversy today. Cars, crossovers, and trucks. How do we define them? And are these definitions still relevant in 2022? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, you know, crossover, the, the classic debate, I guess, has been uh, crossover versus SUV is probably the, the biggest debate that currently goes on. Because generally, if it's shaped like a truck, it's more or less a truck in America. Um, crossover versus SUV. Honestly, I go with whatever the manufacturer tells us it is because that's how they're going to market the vehicle. So, uh, and, and really it's a, it's a distinction without a difference, to be honest in, in modern vehicles. Um, the term crossover was initially used to describe a newer breed of vehicles that, that merged car-like and pat and, uh, and truck-like characteristics together into something rather than a SUV, which had been, but wasn't always, which is we'll come back to in a bit, wasn't always a truck frame with a boxy body on top. Think Chevy Suburban or Chevy Tahoe. Um, now, the original SUV, of course, is the Suburban, arguably, in the world. And it was literally that. It was a truck with a bigger box on top. And uh, they called it a station wagon at the very beginning because nobody had any idea what to call it. And everything had a frame. So it wasn't it wasn't particularly unique or or divisive at the time, uh, but then along came Land Rover, and the very first Land Rovers were bought were unibody vehicles. They weren't body on frame vehicles, and the Jeep Grand Cherokee has always been a unibody vehicle. So this is where the line started getting really blurred, um, and people didn't know what to call four wheel motivation systems at the dawn of these things either. You know, Land Rover had the first four wheel drive system. Uh, they called it all-wheel drive at the time because all the all the wheels were driving. Um, and then at some point in time in time in marketing, car companies mainly decided that four-wheel drive sounded more rugged, all-wheel drive sounded less rugged and more performance oriented. 
But the key thing to know is that manufacturers will call a, a substantively identical vehicle uh, a, a, an SUV with four-wheel drive and then a variant of that same platform with the identical four-wheel motivation system. They will call that a crossover with all-wheel drive. So um, no hard and fast real rules here in, on that front. Um, a good example of that would be, for instance, the Dodge Durango. Uh, Dodge doesn't call it a crossover. They try and call it an SUV, but they also try and call it all-wheel drive. And the exact same system on a Grand Cherokee is four-wheel drive or four-by-four. Um, so it, it really just ends up being how the manufacturer is marketing it and what your personal preferences are. Yeah, I think very shortly we're going to be in a world where we just talk about cars and trucks because some journalists have mentioned, and I think it's a good point, at this point they basically are cars. They're used the way cars are used. Uh, they're family transportation. And for the most part, there's still a huge divide between body-on-frame stuff like a Wrangler or Bronco, F-150, mm -hmm. you know, half-ton trucks, um, heavy-duty trucks. All of those are very distinct from something like, say, a RAV4 or a Subaru Forester. Exactly. Uh, back in the 90s, it was often easy to say that's a crossover because we still had so many trucks. And when the RAV4 first came out and the CRV came out, you could easily say, well, they're based on compact cars. Those are crossovers. Right. Now we have a lot of purpose-built crossover platforms where they're designed with that in mind. They're no longer conversions from cars. Yep, I get so, raked over the coals because I will call a Grand Cherokee and a Durango a crossover because they are. And a Wrangler with anything with a frame, I will consider an SUV. Maybe I'm a traditionalist here, but if it's got a frame, it's an SUV. If it doesn't have a frame, it's a crossover. And, uh, you know, realistically, when we look at crossovers in that way, if it's a, supposed to be a blend of truck and car-like features and design components, then logically, actually, Grand Cherokee, Durango, and Explorer, and the entire Range Rover line, they're basically the only crossovers left. And everything else is just a high-riding hatchback because, you know, they're front-wheel drive-based uh, or, or just front-wheel drive, period. Uh, and then they're just boxy, and maybe they have a bit of extra ground clearance. Maybe they don't, but there's really no true off-roading intent with the the design of the of the body of the vehicle yeah i think at this point you probably got to call most vehicles out there either cars or crossovers but i'll be i'll be clear what i think a truck is i can still define a truck i think a truck has two or more of the following features body on frame construction a locking low range four-wheel drive one or more live axle and eight or more inches of ground clearance. I think you got to have two of those and you've got a truck. What if you had a lowered but body on frame vehicle that was rear wheel drive and an independent suspension? I think that if you've, okay, Even so if it was truck wheel drive, it's body on frame, it's lowered, it's got independent suspension. Does it have a locking low range? Uh, well, it'd be rear wheel drive, so no. No. So so if you've got something that's body on frame, basically like a Panther chassis town car, that's not a truck, but it doesn't have those other things. It doesn't have the locking low range, the live axle or the eight inches of ground clearance. So that's not a uh, truck. Why would a ground? Why would ground clearance be a definition for a truck in a way? I would think cargo bed having the two box format where we have, you know, box for the passengers, box for the bed. I would I would call that the essential design component for a truck. Because we had like we had honest to God cars that had that feature, like um, what was it? The old uh, I mean, we had the Subaru Baja that had a bed. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. had a whole bunch of Australian Outback Utes that were definitely cars that had a bed that were that were unibody and two wheel drive. And I mean, hell, we had a Volkswagen that was basically a compact car with a truck bed. So, yeah, I, I think it's important to have two of those features I mentioned. Because if you go with just one, you can easily find something that's a car that meets the definition. I mean, that's the tricky bit. Is is a Maverick a truck? I mean, it has a, it's truck shaped. It has a truck bed. It has you know a a you can wash out the truck bed. It's got all wheel drive. Um, is the Santa Cruz a truck or is it not a truck? I'm I'm gonna go. Well, can you get a Maverick with eight inches of ground clearance? <laughs> I, I don't think you can get a locking low range and eight inches of ground clearance on a Maverick. So I would say no, it's, it's a crossover or it's a car. Let's find out. I 8.6 inches. So yes. Yeah. 8.6 inches of ground clearance in a Maverick. So is, is the four-wheel drive system all-wheel drive or true locking four-wheel? 
you uh, have all, I mean, it 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 would it is it is all wheel drive with with no transfer case setup. But if that would that would meet some of your your classifications there. It's got the uh, it's got some sort of all wheel drive system. It's got a truck bed. It's got the ground clearance. It's got to be a locking low range. It's got to be all four wheels moving at the same speed, preferably with an immense reduction. Um, because if you've got that, but you've got a unibody, you could have something like a Grand Cherokee, which could either be optioned as a truck or a, a crossover. Like it could be either. You could get eight inches of ground clearance and a locking low range on a Grand Cherokee. So would a would a classic Chevy pickup not be a truck because you couldn't get four wheel drive or a low range? Low ranges and trucks are not actually that uh, that old. They haven't been around that long That's when true. you really That's think true. about it. I think the truck would still have eight inches of ground clearance and body on frame construction. And with those two things combined, aces. Yeah, I'm just not buying it. I think the truck, I think the truck bed is more of an essential component. It's it's like the argument trying to say that that the Maverick is a pickup, but it's not a truck. But you know, the 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 linguistic construct is pickup truck. That is the or the general phrase that is accepted. And trying to parse this out and say that it could be a pickup, but but not a truck, or it could be a truck, but not a pickup somehow. I think that's that's dicing too much word salad there um, so, somehow. Um, I mean, you, you, you could get a Chrysler K car with a truck bed. I'm not sure I'd call that a truck. Yeah, I mean, there there is that question of if it if it is literally based on a sedan rather than being some unique thing, then then you know the Australians want to put it in the category of Ute, whether it has a frame or not, you know, a la El Camino. Um, because it could have a frame, but the cab being part of the part of the bed, et cetera, that that body being all one piece, um, that seems to offend some people. Um, you know, you could there's the question of is the ridge line a truck? Is it not a truck? That's the sort of the origin of some of this debate. And now we have two more trucks that are more ridge line like than F-150 like. Yeah, I, th I think the Ridge Line and the Maverick are both cars. But here we are. Ten minutes later, we've resolved absolutely nothing. <laughs> so the, the argument rages on. We may have to revisit this. I guarantee this is going to be the controversy below this video. I've got a truck for you on our next topic. And uh, we're going to start with performance under $50,000. I got one that's a bit of a, shall we say, out of spec choice. But Alex, why don't you lead off? 50 grand to spend performance cars. 50 grand to spend. Now, how many do I get to pick? I came up with a list that was a little on the long side. I would say you got to pick like uh I don't let let's go with let's go with four. First, second, third, and oh. then one off the podium. Oh, 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 oh. Tricky, tricky. Um I would say uh value-wise, the Nissan Z is probably the best sports car value under $50,000 in the US right now. Um, it's gonna start at 39,995. It will have 400 horsepower, uh, the nine speed automatic transmission or a six speed manual, your choice. Uh, and it looks pretty good. So very, very well priced, I think, uh, for that. Okay, so my first choice, and it had to be a V8 muscle car because we've gone so deep into EVs and hybrids and alternative fuel on this program. So it's a Camaro, 1SS, 1LE. This starts at 37500 Now, that's to get the Camaro 1SS. To get the 1LE, you're going to immediately add $7,000, but you're going to get a lot for your money. Um, first of all, the engine, 455 horsepower, 455 pound-feet of torque, six-speed manual. With 1LE, you get forged aluminum wheels, you get Goodyear Eagle F1 supercar tires, Brembo six-piston monoblock front and four-piston rear calipers. You get a performance-tuned suspension. You get a dual-mode exhaust. You get Magneride, which is absolutely key. You get an electronic limited slip differential, Recaro performance bucket seats, a heads-up display, and you get one interior color choice, which is jet black. But after all that, for seven grand, I'm satiated. I'm happy. Now, I added a few other things like Rapid Burst or Rapid Blue. It's Rapid Burst Blue, $395. And I added a strut tower brace and a high flow intake system. These were all Chevy accessories. So I came out to 46960 I found it is not easy to get destination fees from these build-your-own-car features. But the yeah, destination no. fee is 1195 here. 
it's a big boy. It's built on GM Alpha, which yeah. means basically something like an ATS. So this is like an ATS coupe, but for less. Mm -hmm. what do, what do yeah, you think I'm torn. I'm torn on the Camaro because I do like the SS, and it was on my almost but not quite list. Um, and the Camaro ZL1, which if I was going to Camaro, I would want the ZL1. That's too expensive to be on the list. But my big complaint about the Camaro is it it handles fairly well, but the look and feel is not where I would want it to be for the price tag. And it it is very claustrophobic inside is my big complaint. It has a tiny, tiny trunk, incredibly high sills, very, very narrow greenhouse, um, not a lot of headroom either in the Camaro. And I, I think if I wanted a muscle car, I want something a little bit more classic and feel, and I would do something like a Charger Scat Pack. Um, you get even more power from your even bigger 6.4 liter V8 engine um, and zero to 60 times that are honestly very, very similar, even though it's a four door sedan. Yeah, I'm going with the Camaro on this just because the weight, as I expected out, is about 3,700 pounds. You're probably mm -hmm. looking at at least five to 600 pounds more in a Challenger. You will get more space. It is a much bigger vehicle. Uh, the current Challenger is more like the previous fifth generation Camaro, which was built on the Zeta yeah. platform shared with full size cars. The current Camaro is built on the Alpha platform, which is compact sedans. So yeah. on dynamics, I'm going to pick the Camaro and power to weight. Charger, actually. I wouldn't even bother Challenger. I would go complete four door. I would just get the Charger. Okay. okay. That's legit. Or, that does change it. That or if you want something a little bit, if you want something a little bit, uh, you know, more dynamic, you could CT4V for $45,895. Um, and uh, you can also get all wheel drive on that one. I might be the last enthusiast on the planet who's not like a devotee of wagons. And I'm not a big fan of sedans either. If I can get a performance car with two doors, there's still a romance to that. There's the short the short deck, the long hood, the tiny passenger compartment. Mm -hmm. I can live with the claustrophobia because it's got a lot of it. And you're right. You feel like you're sitting in a yeah. combat pillbox looking out or, across. Uh, if that's more your thing, then you could get a 382 horsepower M240i not the not the front wheel drive one the actual real rear wheel drive coupe for 48550 and all wheel drive is standard yeah i you see i would want the rear wheel drive i i mean i think it's essential to the experience all wheel drive definitely puts down the power better and i think when we get to volkswagen in this topic you're going to see kind of where we divert all wheel drive and two wheel drive but especially when the two wheels are in the back I'm still very much on board. I'm going down with the ship with this Camaro, Alex. You're not. Uh, you're will, not talking. About I will it. say, uh, you know, for five hundred dollars, you can get a software, a third-party software update that adds in the all-wheel drive disconnect feature that we find in BMW's full-on M products because it's part <laughs> of their software, and it turns it on, and so you have a touch-button selection as to whether you want to shred your tires in your M240i or have snow acceleration. So you could have the best of both worlds. Okay, well, hold to that thought. What's next on your list? Uh, let's see. I would pick out uh, Stinger GT1 because you can squeak it in under $50,000. It's pretty rare, and it's the end of an era because all indications are that production is stopping sometime this summer or possibly by December. Okay, so you're going with the sedan. You're going with the sedan that's poop profile. Yeah, the Coupe sedan thing. Uh, it's probably going to be the least expensive to own and operate. Long powertrain warranty, quick 0 to 60 time, relatively fuel efficient compared to the V8 alternatives. Uh, your choice of rear-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. The problem is once you start talking about four doors, all of those other alternatives come into the frame, from the Charger to the CT4. I mean, there's a lot of good options here. Mm -hmm. Is the Kia the best dynamic choice? It's cool. It looks great. It's got decent power, but dynamically, is it really in the same class as the others? Dynamically, it's it's a little heavy in the back, um, but I would argue that it's so inexpensive, and it's one of the few Kias that's not selling over MSRP right now, that you could spend the, uh, the extra $7,000 of our budget here on performance upgrades and have one heck of a lot of fun. Okay. That's that's legit. I I can't think right off the top of my head what would be an alternative to that because it's such a, a unique vehicle. To be perfectly honest, it's mm -hmm. really kind of class of one on the market. It really is a 
a Korean interpretation of an American muscle car in the way that it drives and feels. There is there is um, some there's some similarity to its 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 general dynamics and the Chargers general dynamics, I would honestly say. I mean, there are definitely some four door lift back Mercedes, BMW and Audi sedans out there that you could compare. But once the pricing is factored in, there is no comparison. Right. They're they're way out of this price range is the thing. Okay. Well, I'm going to completely flip the script. I went from a muscle car and now I'm talking about a Miata because the Miata is awesome. And for me, the MX-5 RF, especially if you get it in club spec, there's very little to add. It's almost perfect at that point. Now it's going to start at $38,550. Uh, you're getting the latest version of the engine, two liter engine, 181 horsepower, 151 pound feet of torque. It revs to 7,500. It's not a happy rever, but at least you can play with the rev band. Um, this is a car that has all of the ingredients. It weighs 2,400 pounds, maybe 2,450 with the RF. Six-speed manual, rear-wheel drive, a very, very engaging drive. A momentum car, not a power car, but a momentum car to maintain your speed over a route. And a way to have fun, frankly, at legal speeds, which is hard to do, whether you're driving a Kia Stinger or a Charger or Camaro, all of those cars feel like they're going slower than they are, and you really have to push things, especially in something like the Camaro or the Charger. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. with the Miata, you're going to have a lot of fun. Now, I optioned mine as a club. I added Snowflake White Pearl Mica because in a car that's this small, I want to be seen, and that's the brightest color available. I also added um, what was available from the Brembo BBS Recaro package, most of which comes standard with the club. But... Just so you know, with this car, if you add the Brembo BBS Recaro package, it will add a few, it'll add a little bit to the price, not not the full $4,670 of the pack, because again, you're going to get the, uh, I believe, the sports seats and the forged wheels with the car. So you add the right. Brembo front brakes, and you've got a very tidy package. I added an interior pack for basically a dress up to the side sills and the pedals. I got the first aid kit and the roadside kit. All of that and my final price out the door was $40,050 before the $1,225 destination fee. Ouch. So more expensive than a 400 horsepower Nissan Z. Yeah, but I think you're going to have more fun. Like, I think this goes back to the old notion of the British sports car of the 50s and 60s. And they were objectively terrible. They were slow as hell. They were heavy. A lot of them had beam axles. But they were fun to drive because you were fully yeah. into it at 45 miles an hour. I am I am torn about the MX-5 because it is fun, but it's not as much fun as it would be if it had more modern power. The power level is the problem. 181 horsepower. Um, it's it's just sad that that there was a time where Miata was faster than a Camry, and Today, the Miata is significantly slower than a Camry, way slower than a Camry. Um, yeah, but a rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah, know. and although handling them, although skid pad numbers are not everything, it's worth noting that even the club version with the optional summer tires will still pull fewer Gs than a Camry TRD on a track. Yeah, but here's the thing. When you say there was a time when the Miata was faster than the Camry, that was a time when both of them were really, really slow. So yes, when I say a rising tide slow, lifts all right. boats, the Miata's going to go from zero to yeah. sixty in the fives now. In the fives, right? But that's. I think that's. I think that's the origin of my complaint. Is that you know everything got faster, but you know Mi Miata didn't go at the same rate as everybody else. Um, I don't know. It's 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 a fun little thing. I just, if I think sports car, Miata is one of the the last things I think of somehow. Fun, I mean, I, fun car, sports car for me is a bit of a stretch. Uh, but I mean, well, you know, things like the, you know, the MGTC, TD, MGA, I mean, they were all slow. They were fun. The Porsche 356 oh, yeah. Speedster is slow. You know, you've got all of 65 horsepower. The Miata at least feels faster than it is. When you're in it, it feels faster than the numbers. So it's got it's that just that none of those other things are currently being built and sold as new in 2022. I think that's, that's true. Thing. If this I'm Miata was built in 1990, it would be fantastic. It would be like mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowingly awesome. Um, and and everybody would forgive its portly curb weight of, you know, 2,500 pounds. Um okay. 
But in the 21st century in 2022, that's it just that's kind of tricky. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have the steering feel that a Miata used to have. Um, electric power steering has managed to kill that. Um, it 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 is still light and it is still fun. But okay. the vast majority of people, especially that buy the RF, buy the automatic transmission, and that is the surest way to make a Miata just dreadful to drive, uh, is to yeah, buy well, the most, Yeah, well, most of the people who bought C5 Corvettes got automatic transmission. Mine has a six-speed. So we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Mazda, if you're listening, Alex wants an MX-5 with an LS swap. Please make this happen. No, I would. I, I think it should just have a 250-horsepower turbo, and it would be perfect. Very simple. They have they, a turbo that would fit. <laughs> okay. Okay. You want a turbo? Well, tell me about a Volkswagen that happens to be on your list because you've got a turbo right there. And sadly, before we move on, I would say that a uh, I, I was able to drive a Fiat that had a upgraded turbo because the Fiat version of the of the Miata pair um, had a standard 1.4 liter turbo, and there was an upgraded Abarth swap that existed around the world at some point or another. And uh, 250 horsepower makes that quite a bit of fun. I will just say that. And Miata could have done, and Mazda could have done it, um, but they just don't want to seem to spend money on the MX-5. But yeah, so for, you know, optimizing the $50,000 price limit, uh, Volkswagen Golf R, uh, 315 horsepower, all-wheel drive, 0 to 60 in 4.6 seconds. And for the price tag, you could get, uh, you know, a few options here and there on your golfer. So this is a great cross comparison because the age old question that car buyers, especially enthusiasts ask each other is, do I get the loaded version of a more basic car or a basic version of a more deluxe car? I actually picked the GTI Autobahn, which starts at 38.3 and I optioned it up to 39.9. This is with absolutely everything. I get uh, adaptive chassis, heads up display, parking assist, leather, heated rear seats, power driver's seat with memory, 19 inch alloys and summer rubber. All of that with a acid yellow color they call pomelo yellow metallic. And uh, because, hey, Rolls Royce Phantom, I got dynamic wheel center caps that stay stationary. Mm -hmm. I had so much more money to play with, and I maxed out at under forty with this thing. But uh, I, I guess that is that is the tricky question. If you have a budget of fifty, and this is a play budget, then why not maximize your your budget? Go as close to fifty as you can. Because I think this vehicle, or you. By the way, are you getting your Golf R with uh, manual or the DCT? Uh, in this hypothetical world, I would get it with the manual. Uh, in reality, I probably would buy the DCT. Okay, so here's why I'm going with the GTI. There's a big delta in power. GTI is 241, Golf R is 315. Mm -hmm. But if you get the manual transmission in a Golf R, you max out a 280 pound-feet of torque. Torque mm -hmm. is what you feel when you accelerate, and torque is mm -hmm. what you have to corral when you use the throttle. So on the GTI, the torque is 273 pound-feet, which is just seven less than the mm -hmm. rating of the Golf R with the manual. So if I've got a manual transmission, I want to be like limit of the tires adhesion and and really working to put it all down. Whereas I feel like 280 with four wheel drive is going to be too controlled and too slow. Yeah, well, I mean that there is that question. You, you will get wheel hop in the GTI uh, depending on how you, you launch yourself, which you won't get in the Golf R. So you are going to get that more predictable start um especially in any sort of inclement weather i mean the moment there is mist on the ground um you're just going to be one wheel peeling uh in the gti until you know the vq differential kind of kicks in and tries to send power here and there which you won't get in the golf r but you will get kind of that that uh, classic volkswagen all-wheel drive bogging thing uh if you launch incorrectly in the all-wheel drive model because there isn't the opportunity for front wheel slips you can kind of end up with some you know, aborted launches there. Um, if you do get the dual clutch, though, the Golf R is really quite swift. I mean, we're talking four and a half seconds, zero to 60. Basically, it's pretty significant improvement uh, over the GTI. I do like the suspension tune in the Golf R. The adaptive suspension system in that one has a lot more variability. Um, and I think Volkswagen did a really, really good job with that setup. I spent a decent amount of time uh, back east in the Golf R, uh, in in Tennessee and um, 
I was actually really dreading an entire day on winding rough back roads in the Golf R. And it actually turned out to be just fine because the suspension is really masterfully done, I have to say, in that. Much more impressive than the one in the other versions of the Golf. Well, here's the thing. The GTI is the, the most torrid Golf performance vehicle. The Golf mm -hmm. R is the most accessible high-performance Audi. Like, it's crossed yeah. over the threshold into a world of luxury where it competes with things from BMW, Audi, and Mercedes. Whereas I feel like the, especially with the Autobahn package, you get all the luxuries, but this is still a GTI. It, it's mm -hmm. still more of a hot hatch and a counterculture hot rod, whereas I think the Golf R is on a higher plane as a car and I think as as a performance vehicle. But its price tag is definitely going to be up there. Your GTI ended up with 40000 you said? Yeah, not even. With Destination, which, by the way, at Volkswagen is only $995, mm -hmm. the most reasonable here. Yeah, it's $40,000. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, you, you can golfer for 44000 and I refuse to call it a golf R. It's always going to be a golfer to me. Uh, but you could also Audi, oddly enough, for uh, S3 for 45800 You don't get quite as much power, um, but you do get all-wheel drive and an Audi logo. Yeah, you see, that to me seems more like a comparable to a Golf R than a GTI, any GTI. Like, I really do feel that those two things are more likely to be cross-shopped. But I will say this. If this is important to you guys out there, Golf R, you're going to have something like, I think, 23 miles per gallon combined. GTI, I think that's going to be more like 28. So that, by the way, the Miata is 29. So if if any of this matters to anyone... Right now, our leaders for fuel economy are going to be a GTI and a Miata. By the way, Camaro yep. 16 combined, so like, we knew that. Yep. Or you could CT4V for the same price and get rear-wheel drive. Okay, yeah, well, that, that might be the winner there. But I will say this. I'm not a wagon guy, but I am a hatchback guy, and I love the idea of being able to throw down the seats and put two bikes inside the car, and that's something that the CT can't. Sure you could. You just have to take them apart first. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. <laughs> that's this is this is why they invented uh, you know bike racks. Yeah, well, that's the thing, and you can get those as an accessory from Volkswagen. And still, say well, stay well under the threshold. Um, what's up next on your list? We done uh, we done quite a few, but we ain't done. Yeah, so we should roll through some of the news here really quick, and let's see how you feel about some of these news items. So Integra is going to start at $32,000, and it's basically a Acura-styled Honda Civic Si with the standard CVT. CVT, no thank you. And I think if I'm going to get a, a Civic Si, I'm just going to get the Civic Si. And I got nothing against the Acura. It's a nice car. And I think for badge value, some people will buy it for nostalgia. Some will buy it because it's a step up from Honda. But when I see a Honda and an Acura, I see the same thing. The international branding has always been pretty seamless. To me, you're just paying for a much higher trim level on something that's already very good in the Civic you're gonna, SI. You're going to get that. you're going to get slightly nicer interior bits, uh, a longer standard warranty, and the price differential is not not too large. Yeah, I, I uh, mean, I, I think I'm still going with the Civic, but keep rolling. Still going Civic, okay. Um, next up, we have Ford F-150 Lightning. They have just announced it's embargoed, but the embargo will be lifted by the time everybody's listening to this. Uh, the F-150 Lightning will have a mode where it will recognize that your trailer has been connected, ask you to confirm the trailer, and then it will use historic consumption data to estimate your range while towing that trailer to give you a better idea of your trailer towing range in an EV truck. Is this a See, win? I or do you not? Do you think nobody's going to actually tow with their electric truck? No, I think they will. I, I just think all of these range estimators are based on things that may not apply to whatever you're doing on a given day. So if you know you're towing something that is heavier than any trailer you've ever towed over a route that you've never driven before in temperatures that may or may not be extreme, your brain is going to do a better job of estimating, especially if you're familiar with EVs, than this software. I think you're you're able to do this mentally better than the computer can. I uh, I would agree, and then I would say the average driver is bad at math. <laughs> okay, that's that's um, 
Then moving along, we have the 2023 Mercedes C-Class. Uh, the C43 has been announced. So I just drove the C300. Rather, unfortunately, by the time this episode airs, I won't be able to talk about it, so I'll tell you offline. Uh, but we can talk about what we're going to see in the C43. It's going to be the first AMG, but not the last AMG in the C-Class. So this typical Mercedes fashion, there's going to be baby AMG, full-on AMG. And this one is going to be using a, a two-liter four-cylinder engine tuned all the way up to 402 horsepower and 369 pound-feet of torque uh, with standard all-wheel drive. And then uh, tied with that, the rumor mill is telling us that the inline six that everybody was hoping would be in the C-Class, and based on what I can tell you about the new C-Class, would definitely fit under the hood. It's not actually going to happen in the C63. So uh, rumor is now pointing to plug-in hybrid. Okay, well, that's interesting to me. Look, I'm all about high-powered turbocharged cars, and I think a C-Class is the place to deploy that. I think we've seen in the past on AMGs built on the A-Class platform that this can work fairly well. Uh, I do wonder about the long-term durability of all these monstrously boosted small displacement engines. Like when you're pushing more than 20 PSI into this thing for years on end, what does, you know, what do your valve guides look like? What do your head gaskets look like? What are mm -hmm. your, I mean, what, what's the engine integrity like after five to 10 years of this? Because we're into uncharted territory with that kind of specific output. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting world here. And I would say I am intrigued that, you know, Mercedes is now following down the rabbit hole that Volvo actually started us on uh, back in 2016. Because uh, for viewers, their listeners that might recall, Volvo was the first one to do the, you know what, uh, we see plug-in hybrids as the performance thing. So if you want more than X, then we add a plug. And that's how we get to higher performance numbers. And that's basically what what it appears that Mercedes is going to be doing exact details of the drivetrain we don't know it's definitely not you know a carbon copy of what Volvo has done other than the theme of let's add a plug here um, but the new C-Class is going to have an electric turbocharger so it's going to have a traditional gas-powered turbine and compressor arrangement and then on the shaft the shaft will actually extend further out than it would in a normal turbo there's going to be an electric motor on the end of it so that way when you floor it the electric motor spins the turbo up faster before the exhaust can really get going to pressurize it. So you get that, you get reduced lag and increased boost at the bottom end. Then it will also have an integrated starter motor generator unit to add some extra power and some extra torque to the equation. Um, it looks like it's going to be similar to the base engine in the C-Class in that the base engine is Mercedes' first mild hybrid four-cylinder. Uh, so that model gets 255 horsepower, Pretty healthy torque, uh, 295 pound-feet, if I recall correctly, on that model, uh, plus a 20-horsepower electric motor that also gives you an extra 148 pound-feet. Well, there's no doubt that this electric turbocharger is the wave of the future. I mean, this is going to be absolutely everywhere fairly soon. And for that matter, I think it's the death knell of Volvo's super and turbocharged engines. But yeah, that's already ending because there are new plug-in hybrids that have ditched the supercharger. So now they have, uh, if you get a T8... Uh, which they're now calling the recharge. So if you get an XC60 recharge, XC90 recharge, S60, blah, 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 blah. Um, no supercharger anymore, just the turbo and then a bigger electric motor. I want to drive it. Like I, I want to actually get an impression of it behind the wheel because from the way it's described, it sounds like the end of turbo lag. It sounds more like, frankly, an electric supercharger based mm -hmm. on the instant throttle response of something like a positive displacement supercharger this seems it's going yeah. to be like driving that but without the parasitic loss of horsepower that comes with right belt or gear driven it, blow. Um, if it if it's anything like their inline six engine which currently uses this particular feature in the the 53 version of the amg lineup so the e53 etc that uses the inline six uh three liter model with the electrically driven turbocharger widget on it it does reduce turbo lag but not as much as in the twin charged vehicles that have a turbocharger and a supercharger and then swap in and out um, as we've seen in some others so there's still definitely turbo lag um, but it is uh, significantly less lag than we find in for instance a bmw m3 which actually can be quite laggy yeah it's i mean these days with direct injection twin scroll turbos variable valve timing there are some turbochargers out there that seem almost like an immediate hit Porsche is that way. McLaren is that way. What's interesting to me about the electric turbo 
is that you've got the potential for that kind of throttle response in a less expensive car. Obviously, Porsche and McLaren is not right. Uh, it's not within the bounds of our $50,000 performance discussion, but something like that, like I think we're seeing this uh, engine on the SL43 that's in the European market. Yes. I don't know if we're getting that here, but it's debuting there. Yeah, it's hard to say. You know, obviously Mercedes wouldn't talk about it. I would not be surprised, however, if it did end up in the US because it really does appear that, you know, even though the the pause on V8 sales in the United States was temporary and some of their Mercedes V8s are coming back, it does appear that they are coming back and living on borrowed time because uh, you know Mercedes has been fairly upfront that that there is a lot of R and D going on for four cylinder engines in AMG vehicles and not a lot of development going on in V eights. Yeah, I kind of think, and I hate to say it because I love V eights, but I, I figure we're looking at close to the ultimate or penultimate generation of big German luxury V8s. I, I don't think there's a whole lot of development left there. Supercars, yeah. high-end luxury sedans, maybe for five to six more years, but I don't see another generation of these things. Yep. And then we have Jeep's new three-liter inline-six engine as well. You know, Jeep is now deciding to uh, essentially slow down the development of their V8 line as well. And in the Wagoneer, Grand Wagoneer, soon to be Jeep Grand Cherokee and Grand Cherokee L, and of course, insert all the other vehicles coming down the line, uh, we're going to get their new up to 510 horsepower, three liter twin turbo engine. Yeah, that's a big deal because mm -hmm. among other things, uh, there are two different versions of this. I think one is 510. I think one's 420 horsepower. Both of them are rather extraordinary compared to what is, I mean, the across-the-board corporate engine right now, which is the Pentastar V6. So on that yeah. front, if you're looking at it as a drop-in replacement for the Pentastar, which maxes out at about 285, 290 horsepower in the Jeeps, then it's a big win. If you're looking at something like a Trackhawk or a 6.4-liter mm -hmm. Hemi, you might see it as a loss of character. I'm just surprised from a packaging standpoint that they went with a straight six. From a balance standpoint, yeah. it's nice, but they could be long and tall engines. So that does surprise me. Yeah, the uh, there there's a tiny bit of logic here. So uh, the the platforms it's going into first were designed for large supercharged V8s. So uh, lots of room. So easy to install the inline six. Dimensionally, it's considerably smaller than the than the the 392 or the 6.2 liter supercharged with all the associated plumbing. So that was an easy win. Uh, the the two versions of the inline six aren't going to replace Pentastar. It looks like Pentastar's eventual replacement is probably the two liter turbo on which this is loosely based. Um, and it is definitely going to be replacing over time the 5.7 and 6.4 liter V8 engine. And then at some point in the future, the rumor mill is saying that with a plug-in hybrid system, the 510 horsepower version will end up replacing the Hellcats. Um, what's interesting is the low horsepower version, 400 something horsepower out of the three liter inline six, and that one will run on regular gasoline. So it doesn't need mid-grade or premium in order to, to give that horsepower figure. Um, so that's definitely going to be a win for shoppers that are concerned about that. Um, packaging wise, we'll have to see exactly how long the engine ends up being, but it is considerably lighter than the cast iron block V8s that it's replacing. Um, does development wise, the interesting twist here, and part of the reason they ended up going in the inline six direction is that it will share some common assembly line fixturing basically for the inline engines, uh, the inline four cylinder engines that they already make now. And there are some design themes that are in common with the Alfa Romeo engines. So the Alfa Romeo four-cylinder, there's okay. also going to be a, a, an Italian inline-six. Um, and the two vehicles, the two, two engine designs are not exactly the same. So the Italian engine is a more of a high-performance design, um, slightly different cooling, more expensive design, more expensive construction, et cetera. Whereas the, the FCA one, I should say, the, the Chrysler side of Stellantis, um, that's going to be more of a durability focused engine looks like. And I will say this as a parting thought, this cannot come soon enough in the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. Yeah, I, I'm, I like the 6.4 liter engine in the Grand Wagoneer. And to be honest, I don't get the sense that that customer actually cares about fuel economy. I well, mean, they're not all fuel economy. I'm just yeah. compared to the turbo engine that's available from Lincoln. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's the future right there. You've got 450 yeah. horsepower and 500 pound feet. That's the king of the segment right now. Yes. Yeah. I will be very interested to see what the performance numbers are like. Um, it it definitely is, is coming at the right moment because, of course, Cadillac is going to have a higher horsepower escalate here soon. 
And, yes. uh, you know, Jeep was just barely over the line as best in segment with acceleration with the 6.4. This is likely going to be the fastest way to get your, your Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. Um, but whether it will be faster than the Escalade, we won't know until that, that comes up. But it's likely that there is going to be a plug-in hybrid variant of this. Um, and we know that really the next vehicle in the lineup likely to get a plug-in hybrid is probably going to be the Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer. So there you have it. From battery swapping to the Grand Wagoneer, we give you everything here at Auto Buyer's Guide, all in one yep. show. I'm Tim. He's Alex. And thanks for logging on. Yep. And be sure if you uh, haven't already found this on the usual podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. We are now available on all of the above and uh, more podcast platforms coming soon. Of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, all the social links, etc. down there. And we'll see all of you later. Bye.